0: Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. The future of farming may be indoors. With eroding coastlines, droughts and unpredictable downpours, farming may be better done in controlled indoor environments. Better for greenhouse gas emissions too. We know that's already happening for tomatoes and leafy greens, but what about large-scale crops like wheat or fruit, or what about sheep and even dairy? Well, Darren Keeler is the founder of Way Beyond, a company specialising in data and management of such indoor environments, and he joins us. Thanks for being on the show. No, thanks, Vincent. Great to be here, um, Darren. You talk about these things, CEA, controlled environment agriculture. It sounds a lot like a hot house to me. What's what's new? Sure
1: well there are a lot of things that are new um, the definitions are important I, you know what we're way beyond this position today is we've reframed it under protected cropping and protected cropping's been around for eons um, but it sort of is a better definition for us because it covers any form of protected system so net houses, plastic houses you know and then you go all the way up to your glass houses which is your hot house right? you know which is a also called a Dutch house because the Dutch basically were behind scaling out that farming system. Uh, And then more recently, the last 20 years, you've had indoor vertical farming, and essentially that's been uh, enabled through the development of LED lighting technologies. Um, That's really what the catalyst was for, for a lot of money pouring into this idea of growing produce in proximity to population. You know, and eliminating carbon road miles and all of that sort of thing.
0: So, what are the drivers for making that change? What what what's the where's the demand for it?
1: Uh, several big macros, really. I mean, one of them is you know our cities are getting bigger. So as the populations expanding around the world, uh, you know the the you know we've hit seven billion. We're getting these large urban. Concentrations, uh, you know, that urban growth is also eliminating arable land. I mean, we've seen that in Auckland, you know, with, with out at Pukacoi, you know, it's all been converted into retirement villages and it's all prime farmland, you know, which is traditionally grown vegetables. It's kinda of tragic. It? So yeah, it's kinda of sad, right? So, you know, we've got we've got a diminishing land supply, an increasing population globally. Which means we need to figure out how to produce more in less space. So that was kind of like that, and and the whole sort of thing around uh, eliminating carbon miles. So at the moment, if you know traditionally, if you were in New York and you wanted fresh produce during the winter, you know which we are snowbound, uh, you're that's all being trucked over from California, right? Which is you know very expensive and obviously not great for the planet. Uh, in terms of gases, and and so the idea was, well, what about if we could produce in proximity to these large concentrated populations? And then the third big one's, you know, climate shift. So you know that's that's another thing that's driving production of fruit and vegetables towards protected indoor systems. Uh, yeah, so that kind of the big, the big macros. What, are, what are the it.
0: things that have to be controlled in those environments? You've, uh, I guess it's it's air, light, and and soil, yeah, it
1: varies. I mean the the principal thing is is you know in, in an indoor farm, so a high tech glasshouse or a or a indoor farm under lights. It's it's light. It's um, there's no soil, so everything moves into soilless production, which is traditionally hydroponics. Uh, there's a range of methodologies that have evolved around hydroponic production. So the idea of you know, the plants taking up nutrients through through the water. Um, and then there's a kind of a intermediate medium, which is substrate, which is like artificial media. Mm-hmm. So that's where a lot of the industry is moving because it's very water efficient and also it tends to produce better quality yields. So there's some real innovation going on with not just the physical farming systems themselves, but also the supporting tools and, and uh, inputs that kind of go around it.
0: So we're pretty familiar with the, this now for tomatoes and leafy greens. Sure. Like, how, how far are you seeing this being extended into other crops? I mean, what would it go as far as agriculture?
1: Uh, I mean, you can already grow anything indoors under lights. So I mean, there are there are experimental uh, chambers that have been developed by the world's largest seed. Producers that are growing corn and wheat and rice and other uh, row crops, broad acre crops in indoor environments. The problem is that it's not it's not commercially viable yet. You know, it's not scalable. I mean, if you think about the size of a cornfield, I mean, that's that's hard to do. That's a lot of roof, and it's a lot of energy, right? So the thing with and this is this is the the sort of the catch twenty two of indoor farming, right? The energy costs of the lighting systems, mm-hmm. despite the levels of efficiencies that have come in in the last seven years, are still such that it's incredibly expensive to produce that, and that's why they're trying to move away from leafy greens, which is an easy crop to grow in those environments, but very low-value crops, and try and move towards high-value crops like fruit, right? So one of the um, the principal moves has been to berries, And so what you've seen is a few innovators start producing strawberries in indoor farms under lights quite successfully. Uh, And what that's also leading to is the vegetable seed companies like the Bayers, BASF, Syngenta, also now looking at creating um, varieties or hybrids that have genetics optimised for indoor growing under lights. You know, which, you know, you kind of think, well, is that even a thing? Well, (laughs) apparently it is. (laughs) Uh, and can be done. Um, And so Bayer did a JV uh, and created a spin-out company called Unfold. And all that Unfold does is focus on optimising germplasm for indoor farming under lights for for fruit.
0: I interviewed um, Richard Newcomb from Plant and Food, and they're working on on a miniature apple tree that can grow in, you know, Grow, grow inside uh, at a at a sustainable kind of height.
1: Right. yeah. so plant and food they rejigged their strategic initiatives about four years ago and one of them was is called Horticulture goes urban. Um, and that what you're describing, which is a, which is a dwarf plant hmm. uh, is under that program. Uh, and so they're strategically you know they take a long- term view 10 20 year view of where they need to go with developing, you know, genetics that can be licensed uh, and create unique uh, produce for New Zealand producers. So uh, that's what they're doing. And they're they're optimizing, you know, what otherwise was stuff left on the shelf, like, you know, 10 years ago, you're going, well, what am I going to do with a dwarf, <laughs> a dwarf plant, you know? And then suddenly it becomes relevant because, you know, this whole thing of, of indoor farming's emerged. So I mean, where can it go? You can grow anything. The trick is, can you grow it economically, commercially, you know, viably? Is it is it scalable? Um, but there is certainly investment pouring into it, whether it's genetics, you know, developing the farming systems themselves, and more, and also importantly, educating people. I mean, you need to have you know a new generation of farmer. Who understands how to work with advanced technology, hmm. knows how to work with
0: data? Hmm. It's kind
1: of moving into the Way Beyond space. Well, you now's now a
0: great time to talk about Way Beyond. Yeah. So, what's Way Beyond's contribution in that, this space? So, what we're focusing on
1: is innovation around optimizing production, so seed to harvest. Um, so, we start with the genetics. So, we look, we're, we're, everything we do is at a variety specific level. So, we go right down to what exact tomato is that? you know, is it a cherry, a grape, you know, a tomato on the vine? Which seed company provided the seed? And then we look at the characteristics of that particular variety. Mm. And that allows, so we're dealing with biologics, which is something that people kind of miss because they're so busy focusing on the data AI piece, which is very important. But you know, our secret sauce is really around the fact that we understand the genetics hmm. of what we're dealing with. You're not actually dealing in germplasm, though, are you? No, no, no. 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 But we work yeah. with the seed companies. So yeah. that's why yeah. I think we've announced, uh, you know, our relationship to Bayer hmm. uh, Crop Science. So we're working with their seed production division on hmm. vegetable seeds around optimising the seed actually even before you optimise the fruit. Um, and that's very bleeding edge work. Like we're, we're literally... Developing answers as we go. It's I'm really curious so. about how you optimize a seed.
0: So well, a lot t- of it t- t- is play music.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I mean, apparently that's been proven to be true um, that you can play music to plants. And I know it that works. Um,
0: Peter Yelens was playing <laughs> music to his grapes.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, let's. If it turns into wine, then you probably get me <laughs> into the conversation. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's really. Um, you know, we start with the genetics, then we then look. There's this concept which is used in seed research called G times E times M. So it's genetics times environment times management. This is like the way that the seed industry has always looked at yeah. big levers that can pull to produce better quality produce. Um, and I think the other thing I like to mention to people is that, you know, what differentiates. Uh, fresh produce from every other category of farming is that short shelf life. Like mm. you're dealing with a product that from harvest to us consuming it, it's got only about a two week lifespan, even if it's in a cool chain. Um, so, you know, it's it's the better you can make the fruit at the point of it being picked, the longer it's going to last mm. through that process to us mm. to consume it. So there's some really interesting things there. But But to answer your specific question, it's it's really looking at the um, what they do when they're producing seeds is they essentially accelerate the lifespan of the crop in the greenhouse they're using for the, for the production process, so they super stress the plant in order to get it to grow faster and produce more seeds. Um, but it's a fairly blunt instrument approach. So what with us being able to analyze do high resolution of, of what's happening with the plant from a data point of view. So what's happening with the plant's temperature, whether it's uptake of water, with you know, light, temperature, humidity, CO2, like all those things that are around the plant. We're basically creating data models that allow us to then think, well, what, huh. what micro levers can we pull to steer the plant? So it's called plant steering. How do we steer the plant towards a better outcome? Huh. So um, now, conceptually, you know, That's the part I know. (laughs) And then I hire very smart people. Uh, So I've got three PhDs on staff already. Um, And they kind of dig into, you know, which are both plant scientists and data AI Mm -hmm. scientists. And they basically work in a collaborative partnership to, you know, model all this physiological behavior and then look at how we can optimize it. So
0: data and, and analytics and that's where the AI comes <coughs> yeah, in? Yeah, so the
1: AI is, the way we look at AI is AI is basically tooling, right? So um, every every problem needs a different kind of solution. So if we're dealing with pests or disease or we're dealing with a nutrient deficiency or we're dealing some other aspects, you know, we've got to look at at, you know, the way to solve a particular problem um, and then think, okay, which you know, AI tooling do we want to use? You know, Is it mathematically just regression? Is it machine learning? Is it reinforcement learning? Is it deep learning? Is it a combination of those, hmm. those disciplines? Um, and so that's how we look at it. And we do a lot of experimental work until we kind of hit on something that's working. And then we
0: kind of follow that follow
1: that pathway. Hmm.
0: So that's right down at sort of a seed and plant level. And then yeah. uh, on your website, there are pictures of satellites. So you must be looking at a macro <laughs> <laughs> level as
1: well. That's more to do with weather, climate data. So we 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 don't do satellites. That would be awesome, but we don't. Um, luckily, there's lots of people investing in that, like Elon. And, yeah, let and, some and, other and, idiot
0: invest you know, in that.
1: And uh, yeah. Uh, you know, our friends at Rocket Lab, you know, there's lots of people climbing into that. Um, What we want is the data. So the thing that really interests us is the data. So we have a uh, integration from a climate weather data company, they're like a global aggregator of weather climate data. Um, We pull their data through an API, so live data through an API, and that becomes an input into, you know, helping us do predictive work around the crops.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's such a, a kind of arcane field, you know, it's a, a really specialist sort of area. And mm-hmm. um, when I was just looking at your LinkedIn history, you started out as a marketing manager at the rugby union. Sure. So that's it's, it's quite a leap.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I've had, broadly speaking, I describe, I've had three careers, you know what I mean? So my first one was 11 years in what became professional sport. Um, I guess the common thread through through my career is is I'm someone who's very much involved with leading change. So, you know, in my 20s, in the 90s, with professional sport, I was involved with taking the game professional, you know, so moving it into international marketing, international branding. You know, at Auckland Rugby, it was working with Nike. At New Zealand Rugby, it was working with Adidas, you know, and so it was like a game-changing time, pardon the pun, for, for rugby and it was very exciting because, you know, merchandising, the way we promoted the games. Yeah. Um, it was a very exciting time. And I spent a lot of that, um, in the early 90s, I'd paid for my own trips to learn from the San Francisco 49ers, the Dallas Cowboys, the NFL Properties, Again, that's the way I work. I go and find the best people at whatever it is that I'm doing and I learn from them hmm. and then I bring it into what I'm doing. So that happened in professional sport. I then segued out of that into the tech sector by being involved with the America's Cup program. So I got contracted by Compact Computers uh, to run their America's Cup program or the New Zealand part of it. Uh, and then they got me into tech proper. Uh, and about four years into that, I decided I wanted to be a CEO. Um, so then it was about working my way up through through HP, as it was then, Hewlett Packard. And I had nine years with that compact HP career, which was awesome. It was one of my favorite parts of my professional life. I learned a lot, um, and then I went on and ran various multinational subsidiaries of other companies. Mm. But it was all tech at this point. So mm. the thing is, the exciting thing was that all the way through to when I finished my corporate career in 2013, I was just constantly working with Microsoft, Cisco, SAP, IBM. You know, it was, I was exposed to all the latest things. Mm-hmm. So when I came out of that and then went, wandered the wilderness for two years, looking for what my next part of my life was going to be, um, I came across Autogrow. You know, which so I was doing consulting for startups, which is why I ended up on those boards and mm-hmm. those
0: things. That you do. Through things like Ice House Ventures, and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So, so yeah. I went and
1: I was—I belonged to the Ice Angels for a year, and I but I've been working with Ice House for like 13 years through HP. That's and, right; and, they were kind and of core cool
0: funders, and yeah, yeah. Partners. HP yeah. was a funder yeah. along
1: with a, with I think BNZ and and a few other mm-hmm. companies at the time, and so I I I've been very familiar with the scene, had been in and around it. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe I should try entrepreneurship because I seem inclined towards it anyway, <laughs> you know. Um, so that was my third big thing, you know, to change my life in that direction. Um, and it's changed my life, not just my professional vocation. Do you know what I mean? Like I've, it's, it's, you know, entrepreneurship and being a founder is a completely immersive experience. Um, so Certainly no, com-
0: no, no creature comforts compared to a corporate life.
1: Well, no, it's very different, especially the early years, you know, because you're putting all your own money in, you're you're giving up a lot, you know, because I stepped away from my corporate career, mm. which at that point had become successful in terms of, you know, where I was mm. in that journey. Um, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't satisfied. You know, I was in my, you know, 40s, you know, and so at 49, I became a founder, you know, um, and I poured everything I have, you know, figuratively and literally into what is now way beyond. What did you see in Autogrow that appealed? The cool thing about Autogrow, so the, the sad thing was that Jeff Broad, who was the founder of Autogrow, had passed away about 18 months before I met the family. So it was actually the two sons um, who, who were trying to manage their father's legacy Um, and were struggling with it, because even though they're both very smart guys, they weren't experienced with operating a a company. (laughs) But they were very passionate about keeping their dad's legacy alive.
0: What did it do, AutoGrade?
1: So they were doing, um, they were in controlled environment, ag, and and protected systems, but they were doing um, uh, automated climate control and irrigation. So they were using essentially embedded technology, so computing technology, actually. To you know, manage irrigation, uh, manage nutrient feed, manage climate, and so they ended up. Um, I mean, they were they were an awesome story because they they when I met them, they were in about twelve countries. When we sold, grow to Blue Lab in Tauranga uh, about eighteen months ago, we were in about forty five countries. You know, so over eight years of owning that business, we'd scaled it quite a bit. Um, but it was it was through that I learned a lot about the industry, hmm. so that when I was contemplating everything we were going to be doing way beyond, which is quite a different business, but broadly in the same sector, uh, you know i could I could borrow off that mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. So some of the innovation we saw there was like in the, in Southeast Asia, which is one of the areas we were really built or to grow up, um you know, was the fact that there were young entrepreneurs coming into the sector to move out of field-based farming, which again touches on one of those points you raised earlier, and move it into indoors. So mm. put it under plastics and, you know, put it into substrate. And they're growing uh, things like ginger. So ginger plants, which are typically, you know, the root vegetable mm. uh, grown as soil, they're growing them in hydroponic pots. It
0: just makes, just makes so much sense, doesn't it?
1: It does. And so yeah. what they're getting is they're getting, they're getting higher density production because they can get more ginger into a, you mm. know, a smaller area. They're able to quality control you Know the product through the life cycle, yeah. Um, and you know, they're utilizing less water, less nutrients, less labor,
0: and and so you know what I mean. It's almost like the perfect yeah. You kind see, of these sort of pockets of brilliance, and you must have seen these as part mm-hmm. of kind of this was your journey into the space, right? And you, yeah. see, you must have seen what was happening in the Netherlands as well, where they just have these vast um arrays sure. of you know, glass houses producing, I mean, those some really weird statistics about how much food is produced by Holland in this tiny little country which should be underwater. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, when I talk about, like I'm speaking at the German uh, New Zealand Chamber of Commerce next week, and I mean, one of the, one of the things there is that, is that the Netherlands and Germany, you know, they're right next to each other and, and there's a lot of crossover with, with, you know, Dutch technology having gone into southern Germany to do greenhouse production at scale. Um, so that glasshouse technology, which they developed, or I should say refined, over the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that became like the benchmark for the whole global sector. And and you know when you look at the high tech glasshouse production in Canada, the US, um, Australia, I mean that's all come from Dutch mm. Dutch systems. Um, but but I often point out, you know, that they are a lot like you know if you look at the similarity between the Netherlands, Israel, and New Zealand we're all small countries, we all punch way above our weight in agricultural, horticultural production. Um, because we're small, we have to do that, you know. And that was sort of the thing that's, that's cool about what the Netherlands created, is they took this very small, you know, landscape and managed to do, you know, a, you know meat production, dairy, yeah. horticultural production, all within a relatively small space and do it really efficiently over hmm. time. And they learned a lot because when they started, they used to call the tomatoes they produced in the 60s water bombs because there was so <laughs> much water in them that they it was virtually an unusable right. fruit. So it looked like a good tomato until you bit into it, you know. Hmm. Um, but they managed to refine all that by developing new tomato genetics and then and then, you know, refining it over time. Um, so they've kind of always been the benchmark, but we're a challenger to that. Do you mean in the growing side or in the ag tech side? Uh, both. So in the production output. Okay. Um, but they've been very challenged in the last sort of 20 years by Spain and Morocco. hmm And our customers are in Spain and Morocco. So we're working with the large scale, um, what we call low to mid tech, so plastic houses and net house space mm-hmm. production. Mm-hmm. But you know, a, a glass house in the Netherlands or a farm is typically around about 10 hectares, so 10 rugby fields in scale. Our producers, the smallest one, is about 150 hectares. And more commonly, they're 450 hectares. Hmm. So the scale that we're working with is massive. Um, one customer we have called African Blue in Morocco, they've got 470 hectares of blueberry production That is more than New Zealand's entire berry farming industry owned by one operator. Mm. Um, And it just gives you some idea of the difference in in scale. Yes,
0: and proximity to markets too. So they're close, right on the Yes, they're exporting into
1: Europe and therefore they're competing with the Dutch Mm. and the German producers. I
0: saw a um, fantastic model of, um, I think it was called Sunrise in Adelaide where they were using uh, solar energy for desalinating water, which ran their hydroponics. Right. Um, So the whole thing was a, you know, genuinely closed-loop system. system. Yeah. Is that kind of going to be the typical sort of scenario? Because you say the energy use is massive. It's where the
1: high-tech, I mean, if if you're in the developed west, you know, this is kind of where it's all gone. So, you know, there are operators in the US who've built, literally built power stations to support the energy needs of the high-tech glasshouse production. Uh, And then what they do is they... they, um, they sell off surplus production onto the grid. Hmm. It's quite clever. Hmm. So they're energy producing, self sustaining for for their own operations. Any surplus energy they create, they just sell it to the to the grid.
0: Um, it's quite cool. Through the venture capital company I'm involved in, we've invested in Hotline Labs. Oh yeah, sure. Which is an, mm-hmm. another example of kind of like a it's it's ag tech, um, but it's really tapping into this. Uh, a kind of a new dynamic really around clean tech.
1: It is. I mean, Hotline, uh, I saw an announcement from them recently. I think they raised some more money or there was
0: some. Yes. Yeah. yeah. An that was the moment for us. Right. Yeah.
1: So, so, well, I mean, the thing, raising money for ag tech is really hard, right? So it's, it's really fantastic when any ag tech innovator gets money because compared to, say, fintech or, you know, consumer tech or gaming tech, you know, they can raise money much easier. Is that right? Oh yeah. I mean ag tech is hard, ag tech, food tech, biotech.
0: You really would think out of you know, a, an environment where we've had this long history of science and innovation in agriculture, you would have uh, an appetite for it.
1: You would think so. But I mean, I publicly call it out all the time that, that there needs to be a different approach in New Zealand to, to how we fund you know, ag tech and food tech because the, the challenge is that for the VCs, they're looking at investment propositions that that fall into that typical five to seven year, you know, return period, you know, which you can get with a lot of. You're going to fail fast with fintech or hmm. gaming, or you're going to do very well. You know, hmm. what I mean, there's no middle ground with a lot of those innovators. The thing with farming and food is it's a much longer cycle, you know. So you've got to have investors who are prepared for the idea that their money could be in for ten or twelve or fifteen. Years and there's not a lot of investors who want to do that, hmm. so it needs strategic investment, which is why I kind of often talk about the fact that the New Zealand government, through the Aspire um, Fund and 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 what was the other one called well, the Higher Fund they've got two of them, mm-hmm. got one for startups and one for, for goes through VCs, but That's now right. they're called New Zealand Growth Capital Partners. That's right. But but what I've said to to them at various times is look. For ag tech and food tech, it's it's more strategic. The VCs that you're funneling money off to are not motivated by getting into these longer term hmm. propositions. You know, they want shorter to medium term ones. So the money's the capital's not being deployed to them. And so, you know, those of us who can are off off raising offshore. You know, it was very um, gratifying that that Stephen Tyndall and, and Robbie Tyndall and the guys Damon, the guys at K1W won Came into what, you know, invested in Way Beyond very recently. And I think I announced that last week. Um, you know, but all other funding that we're raising is all coming from, from international hmm. funds like BASF Venture Capital. You know, it's a real shame. I wish I'd had, you know, that there were more of the New Zealand VCs that participated. It's not like I didn't go and talk to all of them. Um, but again, it's just they're not, they're not, they don't feel as comfortable
0: with it. As a sector? Because of the horizons and the. And because of the horizon, because of the specialty nature of it. Yeah. Well, tell us about the, the future then. You know, tell us, let, let's finish up on on sure. the vision for Way Beyond. You know, why why should we invest in Way Beyond? <laughs> my sort of vision and the strategy has always been global domination,
1: right? I'm, I'm, <laughs> is that all? Is that all? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so my, my goal is to transform an entire industry into digital. Um, and and sort of that that is in which industry would you horticulture have, h- horticulture yeah, horticulture right. okay. yeah, yeah. yeah yeah horticulture and particularly you know protected horticulture so um, and one of the things we're also seeing is an adjacency to orchard cropping so orchard cropping is increasingly moving into protected systems you're seeing nets go up you're seeing them move to managed irrigation there's a lot of things happening in hort which is moving our way. You know, because then it lean, leans into how can we utilize data to better manage the crops. So, you know, there's a there's a that's what we're doing. So that's the part of the food production system that we're working with. And that's why strategically we're working with the biggest players in the world, right? Very long sales cycle to get into these guys. But if you want to achieve a global shift, you've got to win the ecosystem and you've got to win the really big players. So, you know, we're working with the world's largest producers, we're working with the largest chemical seed companies in the world, um, and that's that's those are two really important pillars. And then the third one is education. Um, so we just trialled a, or we did a pilot of a digital curriculum. It's the first in the world. We haven't formally announced it, but we ran a pilot with seiko University in Mexico over the last six weeks with a semester five student intake, um, and a. Has gone really well for, for being an initial kind of go at it, um, but you know it's because you know in this new world of digital and data and AI, you know a lot of the industry doesn't understand it, hmm. and so you've got to kind of take them on the journey, um, and that's what Way Beyond's also doing. So we've got to we've got to we educate our growers, we educate the partners that we work with around digital
0: and how to how to utilize it. You do envisage, uh, it sounds already very international. Do you envisage staying here or will th- these constraints that you talked about from a capital, does that sort of imply that you will need to go offshore? At so some in,
1: in February, we already did a Delaware flip. So we're technically now an American company. It's exactly what Peter Beck did with Rocket Lab, right? You know, you, and, and that's Rocket Lab, Lab USA and has been for about six years, right? So that was... That was we've done that. So we're now got a um, way beyond America Inc, and Way Beyond Limited is our wholly owned subsidiary of that US company. Mm. So I'm now president and CEO of the US one. Mm. Um, but our intentions in, in, around the business is that product and R and D will will remain in New Zealand. Um, You know, and we've got very strong, we've got a really great team here. We've got very strong relationships with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise, Callahan Innovation, you know, so we want to, you know, keep fostering all of that. Mm. Uh, And we've got great talent in New Zealand, um, whether it's engineering talent, science talent. um, So, you know, there's a good opportunity to scale that aspect of the business. But all the front of house stuff, you know, like sales and business development and, you know, Finance and all those things—that's all going to, you know, we're progressively moving that into the US.
0: Um, we uh, this is the climate podcast, and sure. uh, we we usually have some thin excuse for talking to anybody about <laughs> about what they do um, mm-hmm. back to climate, but there is a real op- opportunity here, isn't there? You know, so much of climate discussion uh, is is uh, is is necessarily uh, depressing um, because we are invoking some really catastrophic effects. But there is an upside through innovation, right? And it's it's companies like yours and it's the, the kind of clean tech revolution that's happening. Um, climate in in your scenario m- must be an opportunity rather than a threat.
1: Well, it is. And, and, you know, it's... I'll just maybe briefly explain my views on this subject, you know, without making it political. So, Um, You know, my orientation from that point of view has always been around planetary care. So the thing that matters to me is that. um, So my goal from a sustainability perspective is to, you know, support farming practice that is essentially has minimal negative impact on the planet. You know, so that's kind of where I'm focusing what we're doing, you know, so... Um, I think it's a very, we hear and see too many companies and startups all claiming that they've got the panacea for you know, managing climate shifts and, 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 and so on. So we, we tend to say, well, we can specifically address these particular things in our part of what we're doing. Um, so that's kind of the way we, we approach it. I think that in terms of food production at large, the way I look at the climate shift is that, that it's already here, you know. So this is, rather than, you know, where people talk about this thing that's coming at us, it's like, well, I think we can pretty clearly say it's arrived. I mean, if you look at the level of devastation in the Hawke's Bay, hmm. you know, uh, it's, it's, and I, I was down there about two months ago, and I was overseas at the time that the cyclone came. Um, I, I was just horrified, at, at, the, at the degree of devastation in that area, so if you think about that and those types of events have been happening all around the world, um, you know, then it's all, it all suggests you should move towards protected indoor systems because they will go a long way towards, you know, uh, protecting, you know, that industry type. Um, so I think there is a massive opportunity in that regard as well.
0: Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. It was great having you on the show and I uh, can't wait to see what happens next. How, how do we stay in touch with what you're doing? What's the what's the website?
1: We it's uh, waybeyond.io.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Uh, well, thanks Darren for being on the show and well done on stage 3 of your career. Thanks Vincent. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this climate business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka